2: Welcome all to
0: this week's episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast, episode 168, which we are recording on Hobbit Day. So, you know, retroactive week, week later, shout out to Grandpa Tolkien. I'm David Grubbs, Pro- uh, Assistant Professor of English at Houston Baptist University in, well, Houston, Texas. With me today is Nathan Gilmore, Associate Professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How's your afternoon going, Nathan?
1: All so far, so good.
0: Excellent. Also with us, and I believe I'm introducing him for the first time ever, is uh, Todd Pedler, who is, I can't remember what your professor, professorial rank, associate professor, yes, associate professor of physics at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. How are you this fine afternoon, sir?
3: Oh, I'm 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 disappointed. I didn't just get a promotion because I thought I was going to get one, but oh uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well. These things will come out in the wash eventually, right? Um, yeah, well, things are things are good. I mean, uh, we're we're at um, we're at a point in this semester, which for whatever reason, all things have converged. I guess everything must converge, as someone once <laughs> said. Um, uh, committee work and, and grading and everything is sort of piled on. So I'm kind of in <laughs> I'm kind of in this weird limbo of uh okay, yeah, that's what we're doing this afternoon, right? <laughs> yeah. So um yeah, yeah. But uh no, it's good. Um I'm looking outside. Looks like we're gonna get a downpour, but uh oh well. You're not Dave. You're not Dan Dawson, so I'm not. <laughs> I don't.
2: I'm not going to get any advice
3: out of you, I suppose.
0: There's nothing I can do about
3: it. <laughs> <laughs> good thing. That's a good yeah. thing. Maybe, huh?
0: Yeah. Uh, one of my colleagues said in passing the other day in the hall. You know that we just passed the 25% mark in this semester, at which point something deep in my heart panicked. <laughs> um. So yeah, the mid semester of the first half of the semester. Right well dear listeners we have a topic our topic is Chesterton and we are excited to get into it um, before we do that have we got any any sort of news or updates or whatever about the uh, this particular show or shows on the network that need uh, need mentioning
1: ah, nothing's leaping to mind
3: okay yeah the only thing I could think of is our uh, we're recording our pluto pluto episode finally on friday so it should go up next wednesday so it's uh, the day after yeah the day after this drops that should cool beans well yeah, we'll yeah. to that
0: uh also looking forward to uh i've just completely lost my train of thought as to what we were looking forward to
1: our next episode of christian feminist podcast should be coming yes. soon in fact uh barring disaster and i'm terrible at barring disasters uh it should be out before this episode is
0: awesome well uh your your backlog of listening is piling up and i know some of us have some profiles uh some profiles lined up in the pipe and there should be those should be coming your way pretty soon your listeners so things busy here busy in our jobs and busy in the podcast world well before we proceed uh I wanted to make kind of a special note. Um, we don't ask for money on this show. It's, it's something that we've talked about on, um, a few, few occasions. Um, but I had a need and we didn't talk about it on the show, but put the, put the word out via other means and, uh, listeners to this show, um, have been very generous to the Grubbs family. Um, Moving is tough. You basically beggar yourself when that happens. And um, I, I don't want to get into too many details because most of the people who donated were anonymous. And I don't want to, you know, I, I, neither do I want to say this. we are reversing the trend about asking for money. But I do want <laughs> to say thank you. All right. We may not ask for money in the show, but we will say thank you. And I'm perfectly comfortable uh, with with extending Thanks on behalf of myself, on behalf of my wife, Katie, and my children. Um, You you guys have made our lives easier in a way that we feel every day, Um, have made our participation in this podcast easier in a way that we feel. So thank you so much for that. So to Chesterton.
1: To Chesterton.
0: Excellent. Excellent.
1: I have to see the GK.
3: (laughs) Oh, this is starting well. Yes. So I will
0: pitch this one at you, Todd. Uh, Can you give us a quick sketch of GK Chesterton's life? What the GK stands for, I suppose, would be included in that, and give us some reasons for why his influence and his popularity endure.
3: Sure. I don't know how brief this will be, but uh, so <laughs> GK, GK uh, Gilbert Keith Chesterton uh, okay. was famously described by Dale Alquist, who's the president of the American Chesterton Society, as one who stood six foot four and weighed about 300 pounds, usually had a cigar in his mouth and walked around wearing a cape and a crumpled hat, tiny glasses pinched to the end of his nose, sword stick in hand, laughter blowing through his mustache. And usually had no idea where or when his next appointment was. He did much of his writing in train stations since he usually missed the train he was supposed to catch. In one (laughs) famous anecdote, he wired his wife saying, M at Market Harborough, where ought I to be? (laughs) He was certainly known to enjoy a drink or two. And uh, G.K. Chesterton wrote, We should thank God for beer and Burgundy by not drinking too much of them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Private, <laughs> privately, he joked, one pint is enough, two pints is one too many, three pints isn't half enough. See if you can figure that one out.
2: <laughs>
3: he was always uh, self deprecating concerning his girth as well. Uh, he once said that he was one of the most polite people in England because on a bus he could stand up and offer his seat not just to one but three ladies. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh just a a little a little a little foray into uh his adult life, but let's let's begin at the beginning, shall we? Uh he was born in 1874 to a middle-class family in London, uh attended a school named uh St Paul's and later the Slade School of Art in order to become an illustrator. Um thankfully he didn't stay with that. Um He uh, has has given us much to to be thankful for, uh, uh, for that change of of mind. He showed some early promise as a writer early on, uh, winning a writing contest in his last years at St. Paul's and writing for and participating in the Debate Society uh, there. Um, After after Slade, uh, in his early 20s, he was asked to write some articles in art criticism uh, by a friend who had the right connections, as it were. Uh, His family owned the publisher of the art journal – and uh, with that, began a career as a writer that took him into many different kinds of jobs, starting out as an editor at, uh, at Fisher Unwin, a, a publisher, and then as a journalist and newspaper editor, which essentially was, was his principal employment throughout his life. Um, but he, of course, wrote far more than the weekly columns and editorials, uh, as we'll see. Uh, He married the sister of a family friend named Francis, who uh, essentially took care of all his affairs throughout his writing career, which is a good thing given his absent-mindedness. Religiously, he began as an agnostic Unitarian um, and – you know, later, well, upon his marriage, he would have assented to various Christian doctrines, although he would not have affirmed any tie to any church. Uh, his wife was an a, uh, an Anglo Catholic, and uh, eventually, that's the thing that would draw him into the Anglican Church. Um, as you might guess from the the, the opening anecdotes, he he uh, famously struggled to keep his health. He was a hev- heavy smoker, heavy drinker. Um, in 1914, he nearly nearly died. Um, mm. And in nineteen fifteen uh, he he swore off alcohol for a, for a while but uh, eventually came uh, came back to it um, after his conversion in nineteen twenty two uh, to Roman Catholicism, which is where he stayed uh, until he died now that conversion Was a big surprise to a lot of people. Um, It was said that this created not a few who kept their distance. This is from his autobiography. Um, Not least of whom was George Bernard Shaw, who was famously a friend of his, who said, uh, at this point, no, Gilbert. Now you're going too far.
1: Um,
3: <laughs> and uh, this is what, again. This is he would he would remain a Roman Catholic, uh, famously so. Uh, dying in 1936, uh, Requiem Mass was celebrated at Westminster Abbey, um, and uh, where where uh, a good friend of his, um, Monsignor Knox, uh, gave gave his uh, his eulogy. His literary output is absolutely huge. Um, several plays, uh, well over 100 books uh contributions to a couple hundred more 200 short stories several hundred poems and essays that number at least in terms of published essays 4000 um but there are many that that uh, the that were that he wrote that were not necessarily published in uh, uh, and, and retained. It's hard to characterize him with a simple word uh, – novelist, playwright, social literary critic, biographer, uh, you name it, uh, apologist uh, to be sure. His best-known works as far as the public goes are, are most likely the Father Brown stories that we're talking today uh, about. But uh, in his time, he was very highly respected, and his influence on many circles in London and the UK bro- more broadly was was very significant. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to overstate his – his uh, presence in the literary and cultural scene of London. Um, he spoke frequently in lecture venues and and lay preaching. Uh, he was regular on the BBC. Uh, uh, in fact, he had a weekly... Broadcast or a, a close to weekly broadcast, uh, at which time it was said that he might actually take over, <laughs> uh, you know, the the regular broadcasting of BBC by by somebody who I, I actually don't know whether this person was approving or disapproving <laughs> of, of his regularity. Um, he frequently debated others of the English intelligentsia, including H. G. Wells and his it, it, the most famous, I guess, debate partner is his good friend George Bernard Shaw if you know anything about Shaw, you realize quickly this is a friend with whom matters of faith and religion would be uh, substantially contrasting
2: uh,
3: (laughs) as it were. Um, He was no shrinking violet uh, in terms of political statements, um, uh, political forces that he saw that were dangerous to uh, a simpler life that he would favor in England. Um, in the midst of his career, remember when he's writing? He's in, he's in the first third of the 20th century. So he's sitting in the middle of the spread of socialism in England, uh, various socialist uh, governments on the continent, communist influence that, you know, for a while is rising in the US. On the right, you had militaristic right wing uh, regimes, uh, fascists in, 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 in Spain and Italy, and national socialism, of course, in Germany. And he spent a lot of time. Refuting specifically, refuting various ideas on both the left and the right. Um, another good friend of his was uh, the Anglo-French uh, historian Hilaire Belloc, uh, who, uh, with whom he advocated this idea called distributism, which is a sort of Roman Catholic form of social political theory that basically comes out of the distrust of concentrated wealth and power. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has he has uh, one of his early novels the Napoleon of Notting Hill, which I just acquired actually because we're doing this um, broadcast um, is is very directly taking on um, this this idea uh, and trying to you know promote it in fact it's it's said to be uh, something that George Orwell actually looked back to for inspiration um, mm-hmm. in some sense. He's got staying power for sure. Um, He's wildly popular among more conservative Roman Catholics um, and some segments of Protestantism as as well. Um, Broader society hasn't necessarily given him uh, the respect he's due. Um, I just was looking up a couple of articles from the New Yorker. Uh, a title, the title of a New Yorker article from 2008, uh, "The Troubling Genius of G.K. Chesterton." Um, <laughs> uh, Atlantic had uh, a book review uh, entitled "The Reactionary: The Charming, Sinister G.K. Chesterton," uh, written <laughs> written by Christopher Hitch- Sinister. <laughs> they just meant he was left-handed. Um, uh. Uh, Christopher Hitchens actually is the one who wrote uh, wrote that so maybe that isn't a surprise um, that he might take that take that approach. Um, but literary folks generally seem to appreciate him as a poet and a fiction writer and as a public figure uh, in general of the early 20th century. Um, I think he's very accessible. The prose isn't difficult. It's good stylistically. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I wonder whether part of his – His staying power comes from the influence that he had on people like Lewis and Tolkien. Mm -hmm. Um, There seems to be very strong echoes of The Everlasting Man, uh, which is uh, one of his apologetic works, in The Abolition of Man by Lewis. Um, He Mm -hmm. also wrote an essay that's found in Orthodoxy entitled The Ethics of Elfland, which – has to be a precursor for Tolkien's on fairy stories Mm -hmm. Um, and Lewis in defense of fairy tales, both of them, um, Mm -hmm. harken back to things that I find in in The Ethics of Elfland. Charles Williams, also of the Inklings, is uh, known to have noted when Chesterton died, the last of my lords is dead. Uh, T.S. Eliot on this side of the pond um, had a great deal to say about Chesterton, um, but, but uh, the thing I want to quote is this. He said more than any man of his time, uh, he had done more to maintain the existence of the Christian minority in the modern world. Um, and if we go back to Lewis, I mean it may be well known to our listeners, but uh, the everlasting man is cited by Lewis as one thing that gave him hope for smart Christianity, shall mm-hmm. we say. And, um, and I, you know, I, 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 I suspect that part of the reason why people know who Chesterton is may be their connection to other people like Lewis who who are more popular and well-known um, and who spoke highly of him. Um, I think frankly um, – I mean the reason why I like him and again, I haven't read a lot of his. I've read Orthodoxy and, and Heretics and, and What's Wrong with the World. Um, But he's a thinking Christian. I mean there's a a thoughtfulness with the way he approaches um, and a realism with the way that he approaches Christianity that I think is helpful and attractive. And so listeners, grab a hold of him if you can. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Todd. Um, I I, I can't imagine that you would want to add anything, Nathan.
1: Well, only uh, a couple of – a couple moments of color commentary, if you will, to Todd's play-by-play. Uh, you know, at these famous uh, public debates between Shaw and Chesterton, uh, you know, they, they were just infamous, first of all, for the image that they presented. You know, Shaw was this, you know, wiry Irishman, and <laughs> Chesterton was this giant. Uh, so, I mean, they, they would exchange barbs while they were debating important ideas, and my and my, my all-time favorite of these uh is that you know at at one of these debates uh george bernard shaw said you know uh chesterton if i were as fat as you i would hang myself and chesterton replied (laughs) well if i were to hang myself i would use you as the rope
0: (laughs) excellent excellent and, and you know they made it both up on the spot, because those are the, cause that's, that's the guys they were. They did, they oh, didn't, yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't prearrange that joke.
1: Yeah, the, they, <laughs> they are of a, a generation of English writers who seem to have spoken exclusively in witty one-liners. Right.
0: <laughs> well, as you might have picked up on, uh, dear listeners, uh, Chesterton is a huge subject who contains multitudes, and that's not just a fat <laughs> joke. <laughs> um, his, you know, his, yes, his body of writing was like his body of body, oh, and uh, yes, um, yes, there, there's just no way that we can do justice to the breadth and girth and height of the full uh, Chesterton, corpus.
1: What <laughs> one other thing, David? If I could get in here between the fat jokes. You <laughs> <laughs> <I> can't. <laughs> Uh, is that, I mean, when he did write about distributism, and Todd mentioned this rightly, uh, again, I mean, just to add a a bit of color commentary to it, one of his famous sayings about uh, private property uh, is that, you know, ultimately it's not the uh, big capitalists who are the great advocates of private property. He said, you know, the uh, Rockefellers and the uh, Carnegies of the world don't believe in property any more than the guy who wants to have all the women in his own harem believe in marriage. <laughs>
2: that's
3: cool. Chesterton, all right.
0: And also not a fat joke. Um, <laughs> you, you, you diverted my run there, man.
1: Oh, sorry, sorry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's okay. See, this is the kind of guy that he is. He, he's, he's great at metaphors. He's great at paradox.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But before we get into talking about the the distinctly Chestertonian style, um, as I said, there's simply too much of Chesterton for us to cover. Um, So what we've done, uh, what I've done, is I've selected two stories from his, uh, from Chesterton's Father Brown mysteries. Uh, Two stories that actually tag a number of um, typically Chestertonian ideas and observations and perspectives um, so what we're going to be doing is focusing on these stories, and as they surface, things that are uh, uh, favorite bits of Chesterton will be will be addressing those. Uh, it seemed the best way that I could think of to lend our uh, conversation some focus without having to take uh, without having to talk uh, our, our way all the way through his opera omnia.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so. Nathan, uh, before we look at these two stories in particular, which, uh, dear listeners, are The Miracle of Moon Crescent from The Incredulity of Father Brown Collection and The Hammer of God from The Innocence of Father Brown Collection. Uh, Before we turn to these stories in particular, could you give us some kind of brief account of Chesterton's writing style and what is typically Chestertonian that we might find in these stories?
1: Certainly, certainly. A couple things immediately jump to to mind. First of all, as I said before, and I said it in jest, but it really is worth noting that Chesterton is of a generation of English writers who are great students of written rhetoric. So one (laughs) of the things about even his mystery stories is there is a care with the sentence uh, that, you know, has, has diminished somewhat. I've, I won't, I won't uh, beat around the bush on that. Uh, if you would uh, remember our episode a, a while ago now on uh, Orwell's essay, Politics in the English Language, mm-hmm. uh, he could have been looking at Chesterton's even mystery stories, much less mm-hmm. his theological and philosophical writings, as a model for what is going right with writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... You know, we're going to be, I'm sure, reading passages. I'm sure, I I know for a fact I will be a little bit later on. But if you look through his sentences, I mean, first of all, there is variation of sentence length, but it's never arbitrary. Uh, I mean, he is masterful in the way that, you know, Orwell and C.S. Lewis are masterful Mm -hmm. at controlling the pace of your thought by lengthening and shortening sentences. Uh, When he wants you to clip along through a a section, you clip along through it. When he wants you to slow down and think about the idea at hand, you slow down and think about the idea at hand. And he, you know, uh, this might be self-evident, but he doesn't do so by addressing the reader directly and saying, now slow down here, Uh, (laughs) but rather, uh, you know, when it's time to slow down, a sentence might run six lines long. When he wants you to clip along, sentences drop down to seven or eight words a pop. Uh, so just masterful in that sense. Also, uh, as I you know sort of read through these stories for the second time, it occurred to me that he's also of a generation of English writers who tends towards the Anglo-Saxon root words rather than Latinate or mm. French root words. So, I mean, it's, it, it's a very English-sounding kind of prose. More points um, for more Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Todd, what else would you say about the style here?
3: Well, I what I appreciate is the fact that he's dealing in serious. He he, he There is an underlying seriousness to, especially the way that Father Brown is is portrayed,
2: mm-hmm. um,
3: in terms of the way the comments that are made, the way that he might lead people with whom he is speaking to to conclude something something important um but but that is delivered sometimes it's actually really very funny <laughs> mm-hmm. you know the the, hum- the the way that humor is infused with the serious uh i i just i very much appreciate in these, um and uh, you know I, I i also i i i've said this to my wife in just in, in in just the last couple of days you know this is fun i mean it's fun reading and um, and, 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 and beautiful at the same time. I mean, it's not, it's not the prose that, you know, some people produce, which is ponderous. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but is, is I think appropriate to the task. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, I guess that, I guess that's it. I would just echo what you, uh, what you said in that he's, he's definitely a stylist. Mm-hmm. Um, and it comes through both in his essays as well as his short stories. And I've not read any of his novels, but uh, mm-hmm. but uh, the short stories certainly seem to to have that same kind of skill with language.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah,
0: and the, the the there's also a very strong um, and you note this in the humor that the humor is not just in what characters say; it's also in the narration. Oh, sure. Um, so the, the, the narrative voice is um, occasionally or ironically, um, but also in a, in a very jovial way, um, funny. Just, just mm-hmm. in its descriptions, you you feel like uh, the yeah the narrative voice is very like Chesterton. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, it reminds me of Woodhouse, too. I mean, there's, there's, there's yeah. places in Woodhouse that are very similar in, the, in that way, mm. um, and they're similar eras. So I guess that's not surprising, and similarly literarily fa- focused. Um, yeah.
0: Well, I reckon we ought to begin and talk about specifics, not generalities. Um, the first story we'll look at is The Miracle of the Moon Crescent, which, as the title hints, the plot of the story is concerned with a miracle— so, what is the miracle? I guess you have to tell us the story a little bit to get us that. And how does this story end up leading us to some Chestertonian observations about belief and unbelief?
3: Well, so I, I, I thought at this point in time I'd better break, you know begin with the usual caveat, which is if you've not read these stories, it's time to pause. Pause the podcast. <laughs> in the public domain, you can find them.
1: Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, in fact, I will link to them in the show notes.
3: And, and so uh, you can find – I guess the link that you'll use might be the Adelaide University.
1: Uh, it will if they <laughs> use my link.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. You can also find them at Gutenberg if you don't want to bother finding the link. But, um, so I would, I would pause and, and read both the stories, and uh, they're brief. They're easily read in a short time, so if you want to avoid spoilers, pause now. Okay, I've warned you. So, uh, the miracle of Moon Crescent. Um, Moon Crescent is, I'll I'll not tell the miracle until we come to it. (laughs) It, It's an apartment building which seems, I actually think the setup is really quite funny too. Um, It's an apartment building. It seems to be stereotypically early 20th century mixture of classical and modern. Something of a mixture that uh, Chesterton seems to delight in poking a little fun at. Um, the exterior classical form uh, uh, is around an interior that's been renovated, as he said, on the monotonous pattern of an American hotel, uh, <laughs> which I loved. Uh, gorgeous classical exterior, bland uh, interior which in which the apartments are as identical as the hundred cells of a hive. On the one side of the building where uh, the action takes place, there's a garden, beautiful garden. On the opposite side, there's this blank and windowless wall of a colossal warehouse. Um, one of the main characters, Warren Wind, uh, the, the the one who's, uh, whose murder we discuss, uh, has an apartment in this building. He's a well-connected businessman, apparently known for soundness and rapidity of judgment of character. Um, there's a there's an anecdote given of his being presented with three tramps uh, whom he quickly judges one he sends off to an asylum one to a drunkard's home and and the third he hired as a personal valet um, <laughs> which, which interesting enough uh, although that will be important right yeah um, He's a very wealthy man. He has a secretary as well as this valet, and he's meeting at the beginning of the story with Silas Van Damme, who's an oil magnate. The meeting is ended. The men leave the room um, and are instructed not to return, and uh, in the hallway, they meet a a new character who's some sort of uh, shyster, maybe I'll say, who speaks of (laughs) – of a new spirit from Oklahoma city and he wants to meet with wind and, and, and convert him. Um, the secretary says, no, 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 uh, no, he's not to be bothered right now. And, and, um, in the midst of this, they, they, their time in the the hallway, they have this discussion about, uh, about spiritual things and they all seem to be varying degrees of atheist and so forth. And in the midst of this discussion, as often happens, father Brown pops up and, uh, <laughs> tells the secretary that he's got to see Warren Wind to see if he's okay. Um, and, and they say, why? Well, well, he's just been outside the warehouse side of Moon Crescent and saw a crazed and ragged tramp, an Irishman who shouts some oath against Warren Wind and shoots a pistol that's got a blank cartridge in it and runs away. Um, but before he runs away, the tramp knows Brown uh, and tells him that nobody but Brown could frighten him today. And the two talk, and, and um, it comes out from win- uh, about wind that the tramp, the tramp says, this, that's a man who thinks he's a saint of God, but if he knew what I was saying of him, he would hang himself. Hold that in mind. And then he runs away. Meanwhile, uh, well, or at least this was what prompts Brown to go up to the apartment to look after him. And now they're back. At, we're back in the hallway. Fenner, the secretary, assures Brown that Wind has to be okay because the door has just been closed and they've only been a ways down the hallway and they hadn't he hadn't come out. Nobody had gone in. And he, they, they 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 think even about a gun. If a gun had gone off in the in, even if it hadn't had a blank in it, even if it had a bullet in it, nothing could have happened. Wind has got to be okay. But Brown persists, and everybody joins in mocking Brown because they think. He's assuming that the curse that the tramp uttered as he ran away must have done something. So this leads to a long discussion of all the crazy things that they, that they say Brown believes. Miracles of this kind and that kind. Um, it's actually a pretty funny passage. Uh, Brown says, yeah, sure, there are things that I believe in and you don't. But nevertheless, I believe wind is not well. So... It's going to take you no time to prove that I'm wrong. And here's where it comes, right? This is enough for the Oklahoma City dude. He barges into the apartment and wind is nowhere. So where would he go? That's the miracle. He's disappeared. Nobody can figure out how. They try to come up with every possible contrivance and nothing seems to make any sense. And Fenner at one point says, it can't have happened at all. It simply hasn't happened. And Brown, (laughs) Brown, 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 Brown retorts, oh, yes, I can just see it. I've never seen any of the TV adaptations, by the way. But, you know, little little meek little figure. Oh, yes, it has happened all right. <laughs> suddenly, they've, they've exhausted everything. They've exhausted everything they can come up with. And as Brown says, oh, yes, it's happened, they suddenly think, oh, my goodness. Maybe it has something to do with this curse. Um, at this point, they seek out the authorities. They go outside to the park below. All the atheistic types are spooked. They're walking about. The trees are looking freaky, and they see something up in the tree in the, above. And what is it? But it's Wind's body. Very long rope is attached to his neck, and so forth. So Alwyn, uh, the the Oklahoma guy, says, "Well, he remembers that the tramp had said something about Wind wishing to hang himself." Um, but they still can't come up with a solution to this. So. At the toward, sort of toward the end of the story, is there you know the mystery now has made it into the papers? It's being trumpeted all over the place, um, and it's this curse, this curse from this wild Irish tramp. And 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 they go to visit, uh, they being Van Dam and the secretary, they, who who are still dumbfounded. They go to the psychologist, who apparently <laughs> is uh, I don't know, he's a dealer in things mysterious, and he paints Father Brown as one who's a trickster and understands the psychological. And so he's out to fool people into believing in spiritual things. And so that's what he's done. The claim is that this is all just Brown's way of causing the secretary and and Van Damme, the oil man, to, to turn from atheism to religion. Um, so, you know, this is not Charles Hackney. This is a scientism practitioner, right? This is a <laughs> psychologist who's all about the uh, all about the natural, and he's a pretty good villain, actually. I think that interchange is pretty fun too. Um, but Fenner, who's the secretary, he's had enough, and he said, "Look, even this stuff is just this is just too far fetched." Um, and he says at one point, he says, I, "I does rather believe in a priest who believes in a miracle as disbelieve in any man having any right to believe in a fact." Um, so he says, your, <laughs> "Your stuff is nuts. Off with you." Here comes Father Brown. He's going to solve it all, and of course they expect, right? They expect. Well, well what, what Van Damme and Fenner want to do is say, "You were right after all. It was a, it was the curse." Father Brown. They think they think that's what he thinks, right? He never said so, right? Um, he says uh, there's a brilliant move here where, where 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 Brown, in talking to them, says, "Yes, I believe in miracles." I believe in man-eating tigers, but I don't see them running around everywhere. Um, And the two are, you know, the two are flummoxed and, 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 and don't know quite what to think, and they try to get Brown to say, hey, this is the way to kill off materialism, just trumpet this miracle. Um, and, and Brown says, no, no, no. Uh, he says, lying may serve religion, but I'm not sure it's, it's serving God. And finally he lets them off the hook, explains the, the, explains the mystery. What was the mystery in short? Irish tramp downstairs shoots the gun. Wind is in his apartment, looks out the window. The assistant, the valet, who was one of the other Irish tramps from the beginning, uh, lowers a rope down from the room above. Yanks him up, breaks his neck, I presume. They lower him down to the ground. The third Irish tramp, the third of the three that he apparently judged early on, put them, puts him up in the tree, makes it look like he hung himself on a tree, and so forth. That's the end. Now, the miracle, of course, is, is how did he die? Um, what is he what – is, what is Chesterton, Chesterton doing here? Uh, there's one thing he says that Brown, Brown says that I think captures it. He says it's natural to believe in the supernatural. It never feels natural to accept only natural things um, so what what Chesterton often often does and I've seen this elsewhere um, is he deals in the fact that people there there for him what he's trying to explain is there there's it is natural to believe in God there's a natural belief, whether we reject it or not, and so he you know he he gently castigates them as those who are just shaking their fist at god um but pointing to the fact that they were quick to leap to this this supernatural idea anyway um even so and um yeah so you know i think he's he's taking on a number of people a number of types of people Mm -hmm. um uh, certainly, the psychologist at the end, I think, is a a, a, a big target for him, um, and a lot of fun to read. Um, but uh, you know, I think he's he, he his his main deal here. And you guys can certainly throw your two cents in. Um, you know, he's writing he's writing in a time when uh, materialism is on the ascendancy, of course, and um, People are mocked for belief in the supernatural, and so this, in some senses, this obviously isn't a complete apologetic, but it's a first step saying, hey, look, there's nothing unnatural about this belief, and y'all are, y'all are prone to it anyway. So I'll let you guys get in because I've gone on too long.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Nathan, what would you, what would you add? What have you, what have you noted here on this theme?
1: Well, a couple things that uh, occur to me. One of them is that, as, as Todd just noted, I mean, you know, the, the fun reversal at the end uh, is that the Roman Catholic priest is the only materialist left standing by the end of the story. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> uh, and, you know, he is uh, only capable of remaining a materialist because he hasn't already ruled out anything extra materialist. Uh, so I mean, you know, that, 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 that that's one of those moves that, uh, couldn't be any more GK Chesterton. Oh no. Um, now the other thing that I would note is that, um, what we've got here, uh, and, and this is going to kind of roll into the next one, David, so I'll probably tee you up to give the next question here, but I mean, <laughs> one of the things that's so interesting here is that Father Brown represents everything old world in this story. And Mm -hmm. yet he remains the most rational precisely because he has an anchor in that old world. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Yeah. (laughs) The, it it, it, it is really interesting because, uh, I mean, uh, you're, 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 you're both right in that all all your observations so far have been, have been on the money as, as I read the story. Um, but I think it, I think it's fascinating the way uh, Ch- uh, Chesterton and particularly the article between the you know the three initial skeptics and the psychologist the mm-hmm. way they end up themselves saying things that Chesterton has said in other essays, mm-hmm. um, <laughs>
2: yep. you know
0: that that the psychological explanations being offered them to To account for this seemingly impossible happening, that those psychological accidents or those psychological explanations end up, um, and this is the quote: "You ask me to to disbelieve the facts of this world as they appear to my own five wits." And it's and this is a this is a Chesterton point that that C.S. Lewis picks up as well, which is that that ultimately. Um, you know, a a lot of the the scientific discourse of materialism Mm -hmm. ends up not just providing material explanations for the things we see with our senses, but also purely materialistic explanations for our senses themselves, which then undercuts our ability to trust them. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... (laughs) <laughs> and 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 it's not Father Brown at this point who's who's speaking the sermon as he usually is.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Now he's very. I mean, I, I and I I appreciate that too. Just that technique of 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 weaving his perspective and things that he is going to say in other mm-hmm. uh, other venues into multiple characters it's not just father you know Father Brown is not the the uh, you know the, mas- the monastic superhero right I mean, <laughs> yeah um, Yeah, so no very much appreciated that uh, mm-hmm. that whole dialogue yeah
2: mm-hmm.
3: yeah well also interesting because it's it's, uh, it's something of a
0: trick played on the reader if you've read a lot of Chesterton by the time they get to that point you might feel like okay we've we've hit the we've hit the sermon. Oh yeah, not yet. we we found the moral. <laughs> yeah. But the moral, the moral for this story is actually yet to come. Um, proving that we should be open to the possibility of miracles isn't actually, um, ultimately, what Chesterton is after. Mm-hmm. Um, which we will follow up with that with you, uh, Nathan, uh, in that this story is also concerned, I think very powerfully, with... Um, Notions not just of the relation of the human and the divine, but also of the human and the human. Um, notions of class, um, mm. especially played out in acts of benevolence and judgment. So, what what kind of homily does Father Brown end with, and who is he preaching to, so to speak, with this final moral to the story?
1: Right. Well, one of the things that makes the class discussion so interesting in this story is that, like I said, Father Brown comes in as the figurehead of everything Old World. He is uh, not only a Christian, he is Roman Catholic. He is not only Roman Catholic, but he is a priest. Uh, And so all of these American characters uh, consider themselves to have progressed beyond it, whether they be materialists uh, or whether they be, you know... Uh, adherence of this new uh, wind religion, and I, 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 I mean that—that's a pun that runs all the way through this story, dear heavens. The, uh, yeah, the
2: wind. The
1: yes. yeah, the 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 guy from Oklahoma is you know preaching a new religion of breath and wind, yes. and then a guy named Wind end up ends up you know swinging in the wind. Um, it's like wow, I, you know. As as if the first, you know, as if the other story hadn't hit us with a hammer, but we'll get to that later. That's right. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But the three uh, tramps at the beginning, the reason they conspire together to murder Mr. Wind is precisely because of his much vaunted rapidity of judgment. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Father Brown says, you know, the, the resentfulness, Resentfulness and ultimately the vengeance of these men came precisely because, you know, Mr. Wind, who prided himself on being able to judge quickly, judged them quickly. Uh, so, you know, without knowing them, without hearing their stories, certainly without, you know, walking with them, uh, he basically sums them up and acts as a tyrant, frankly, to them. Uh, so, even though, you know, the seeming benevolence of wind uh you know puts them all in their places it turns out that human beings don't like to be put in places and mm-hmm. so you know this is the the father brown sermon at the end that uh ultimately if you think you can judge people quickly it still might not be a good idea yeah and it's, David what uh, would you add to that
0: well just the way that he ends the story um he was killed for being a judge of men is is what he says and then one of the characters says well you know i'm blamed if i understand the the the, the breezy western gentleman haha, ha breezy um yeah <laughs> your wilson and your irishman seem to be uh the the valet the and and the the hobo Uh, Your Wilson and your Irishman seem to be just uh, a couple of cutthroat murderers who killed their benefactor. I've no use for a black and bloody assassin of that sort in my morality, whether it's religion or not. To which the secretary responds, he was a black and bloody assassin, no doubt. I'm not defending him, but I suppose it's Father Brown's business to pray for all men, even for a man like... And Father Brown's interrupts. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's my business to pray for all men, even for a man like Warren Wind.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So the one who's being held up as the sinner for whom the priest then intervenes, the one whose soul is prayed for, is is actually the man who's died, mm-hmm. um, not the murderers, because mm-hmm. uh, you know from Father Brown's perspective. Um, His sin was in some way the more monstrous Mm
2: which
0: is which is interesting i don't i don't know that he would necessarily say that in like you know actual life but Mm -hmm. father brown stories are always at least half parable Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. anything else that we want to say about the miracle of moon crescent before we move on to the hammer of god
1: I think I'm ready to move on. Yeah, I think it might be Excellent.
3: interesting to actually put them together you know, yeah. mm-hmm. at, at the end. So,
0: Sure, let's do that then. So turning to The Hammer of God and teeing this up for you, Todd, again, Chesterton wants to populate his story with characters that are essentially a rogues gallery of worldviews. That's mm-hmm. uh, one of his favorite texni- techniques. He doesn't do no. it all the time, but he does it often enough to
2: mm-hmm.
0: be a movie recognized. So who is in Browns and uh, Chesterton sites this time around, at least in terms of worldviews?
3: Right, right. So there's a number. There are a number of them that uh, that will come up again as I sort of run through the the, the plot lines here. Because I think again, this is another story that's just very interesting. I mean, I, you 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 chose well, sir. Um, okay. Yeah, so this story is set in a, a, a small village in the English countryside, and the action centered around the main square and the village church, and contains uh, the very devout wicker Wilfred. Bohun, I have no idea how to pronounce that name, (laughs) Um, and it's not Bohun, I don't know, Um, and his older brother, who is a colonel, um, Norman, and the two couldn't be more different. Uh, Wilfred is the devout and prayerful Anglican churchman, Uh, Norman is the worldly carousing hedonist, right? The two uh, come together at the beginning of the story at 6 a.m., And Wilfred is off to prayer, his usual Exercises in the morning, and Norman is still out, having, as the story says, either his last glass Tuesday or his first glass Wednesday. The the colonel was not particular. (laughs) Another lovely opening paragraph. I just Mm -hmm. thought this was fantastic. Um, The story also features a big hulk of a man, a blacksmith, who's away that morning, having been in another town. Uh, at a revival meeting, and he's he, he's referred to as alternately a Puritan or as a Presbyterian. Uh, the
1: two would be very tightly wound uh, together. And every one of our OPC listeners just said "Amen." <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, I'm thinking actually more likely it's the Heritage Reform Netherlands congregations who are saying "Amen." But anyway, um, <laughs> the uh, the uh, whether Wilfred is let's see. Uh, where was I? Where was I? Oh, yes. So, um, Norman says, I'm going to go check in on the blacksmith, knowing he's away, but his wife is at home. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, leads to a discussion. This leads to a discussion between Wilfred and Norman about the fear of God and whether uh, Wilfred is... Cons- uh, sorry, whether uh, uh, Norman is concerned about God or the blacksmith happening upon him and the blacksmith's blacksmith's wife while he's calling. The two part... Wilfred goes inside the church. He happens upon the village idiot named Joe, who's a nephew of the blacksmith. Never been inside the church to pray. And this this idiot, uh, I'll use the word because Chesterton does, he leaves. He passes out the door, and the last thing Wilfred sees is the colonel, who's still out on the square tossing pennies at the idiot Joe, mocking him and so forth. Later, along comes an atheist got to have an atheist right um, <laughs> so we've got an atheist who's the village cobbler. He, and he comes into the church and finds Wilfred who's surprised to see him there, of course, and the news comes out that norman's been murdered, and the two go out to the square to see Norman face down with a smashed head a violently rather violently smashed head, not much left to it, apparently um and there at the at, there are the doctor the presbyterian minister the priest from the roman catholic chapel to which the blacksmith's wife is attached um and she's there also crying on the bench so immediately because of this injury the assumption is of course that the blacksmith has returned and murdered him uh due to the the, the assumed infidelity and, and and so forth he's the only one strong enough they say to crush the man's head like this so they're pondering this Where's the, where, uh, wondering where the blacksmith is and along comes Father Brown how he ends up at these places I have no idea but that's part of the mystery right <laughs> <laughs> um, he uh, you know, yes indeed so he, he notice he notifies everybody oh turn around look hark here he comes and he's coming up on the road accusations fly the murder weapon is revealed it's a, the smallest of hammers from the blacksmith shop But it's clearly the murder weapon it has got the hair on it and blood and whatnot. But it seems nonsensical that the blacksmith, who's capable of wielding the largest hammers in the shop, would have chosen that one to do the deed. Mm. The blacksmith, Puritan he, amidst all this, notes, is Colonel Bohun dead? Then he's damned. Chesterton's going there right the atheist cobbler then cries out don't say anything don't say anything and Chesterton describes him as dancing about in an ecstasy of admiration of the English legal system for no man he says (laughs) no man is such a legalist as the good secularist I love that Mm -hmm. Uh, their reply from the blacksmith is uh, also rather precious. It is well for you infidels to dodge like foxes because the world's law favors you, but God guards his own in his pocket, as you shall see this day. Moderate your language, says the doctor. Moderate the Bible's language, and I'll moderate mine. So the Uh investigation... (laughs) (laughs) Investigation continues, and the men are bickering in the square. Father Brown is looking at the hammer. He's intently looking at the hammer. Charges seem to be likely. Interaction between the inspector and the Puritan blacksmith is interesting. He says, finally, go ahead, charge me. I have friends who will vouch for me. And then soon two of his friends are there. They're from Greenford, the town he had gone to, and now everybody's flummoxed. Did the wife kill kill him? Who knows? That was dismissed quickly. They consider... Someone says something. Only an idiot would use a tiny hammer to do this. Uh Aha, it's Joe. No, no, no. What do we see here? This is what's beautiful. Well, one of the things that's beautiful. So Wilfred the priest, if you haven't figured it out yet, of course, if you hadn't figured it out, Wilfred says, aha, as a priest, I should be no shedder of blood. And he's pleased now to see that the criminal is clear. It's the idiot because he's a criminal that that can't be brought to the gallows. And the motive is clear. The idiot was being mocked, and therefore murderous revenge makes sense. So everybody jumps on this as the obvious solution. Brown, though, he's done this before, says, uh-uh. To which the doctor says, that fellow seems to know more than he ought to. Those <laughs> popish priests are deucedly sly. Wilfred whimpers, whimpering. It was the lunatic. It was the lunatic. Everyone's confused. Maybe God did it, says the Puritan. No other solution makes sense. Blow is violent, has smashed his brain with this little hammer. It's a miracle. Wilfred responds at this point that he had warned Norman to beware God. So, Wilfred is taken aside by Brown. He's visibly shaken. They enter the church... And now comes the Nathan moment, right? Wilfred and Brown go up, uh, up to the top, uh, up to the top of, uh, uh, up to the steeple. Um, It seems. Am I missing something? I'm missing something, I think. I'm missing something. Well, no, he speaks there of the blacksmith, whom he characterizes as a good man, but not a Christian, one who professes that Scotch religion, in which (laughs) others are judged from on high. And Brown then goes on to speak of another man who grew fond of high and lonely places to pray, who fancied he was God in those dizzying heights and thought it was his to judge and strike down the sinner. Of course, again, like I said, he's playing, he's playing the role of Nathan here, um, and you know Wilfred is cut to the quick. He starts to go to jump out the window. Brown stops him and says, I'll hear your confession. And nothing more will be said. The story ends with Wilfred down on the town square after this incident, confessing his guilt. Now, who have we taken on? We've taken on the Puritans. We've taken on those who, who judge and look down on others and see their role as passing judgment on everyone else. Uh, we have – who else? That was the one who I thought most of.
0: Well, the Puritans are there. You have the atheist cobbler. You have the
3: atheist cobbler. Yes. <laughs>
0: yeah.
3: yeah. Um, I mean, those are the two that I see. Those those are the two that I see most clearly. I mean, he's clearly going after. He's clearly going after judgmentalism again, just as in the mm-hmm. previous story. Um, and he hits it on two fronts. Um, but he also has his own morals you know, his own moral tale to tell. Um, in the way that Brown deals with. Um, the way that brown deals with this guy um so i don't know i could only come up with those two uh mm-hmm. those two worldviews what are we uh well i guess the doctor you know the doctor is very i guess there's this this discussion about the physical science your physical science is just wrong mm-hmm. uh right the woman is not going to be a strong enough to kill him mm-hmm.
0: um well you follow the detective and the detective is all obsessed with the blacksmith because he has the motive Yes. But then he doesn't have opportunity. Right. So it's the it's that legal perspective.
3: Right, right, right. I mean, there, yeah, there, right. there certainly does seem to be the, um, again, the, the confusion of what happens when you can't s- explain something directly, uh, you mm-hmm. know, sort of a scientistic point of view. But, uh, yeah, what would you guys add?
1: Nathan? Oh, I mean, you know, the... The colonel himself, I mean, the the hedonist, is obviously, you know, a pretty despicable figure. I mean, (laughs) not not only because he's going to go uh, continue his seduction of the blacksmith's wife, but also because when they find him, he's trying to toss pennies into the mouth of the (laughs) village idiot who stands around with his mouth open. Uh, I I mean, I I wasn't entirely sorry to see him go. (laughs) He had
3: that curly black mustache, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. There you go. Yeah, he,
0: uh, he's he's such a he's such a villain, but I mean he's he's very clearly your, you know, he's your hedonist who just yeah. doesn't give a rip. right? You mm-hmm. know? Um, <laughs> and he's the one killed off, um, well, ultimately killed off by his brother, who is who's kind of the inverse of that. It's the the right. stoic killed the Epicurean.
1: <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Penseroso Pencer, dropped a hammer on Allegro. <laughs> exactly.
0: Exactly. Uh, very good. Had to, um, had
1: to get the Milton in there. You bet. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, it, it's, uh, I, I don't know. I, I love this story. I assign it um, whenever I do um, sort of introduction to literature or classes on that nature. I assign this as, a, as a, a, a story for close reading. I leave the ending off and ask students to solve it themselves.
2: Oh,
0: very hmm. good. Um, uh, usually about a quarter of the students think Father Brown did it because they deeply suspect his oh. knowledge and having read no other Father Brown <laughs> they don't realize he's the detective
3: deucedly <laughs> sly. Yes. sly
0: yes those Romish priests are <laughs> deucedly sly <laughs> um, one of the things that I think is interesting about this particular story is the uh, the way physical space plays into uh plays into the story both uh, especially the physical space around the church its interior and its exterior so uh are there ways that paying attention to to chesterton's characterization of this sacred space uh, can point us to um, insights about the story nathan
1: well, I would want to set it up with, a, with a, con- a contrast again with the colonel, because the colonel is a man of pleasure uh, and cruel pleasure. I mean, let's just be honest about it. I mean, he sees uh, someone without the mental capacity to fight him, and he tries to toss pennies into his mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sees an extraordinarily pious family, and his first thought is to seduce the wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one thing about it is that it's all very immediate. It's all very sensory. Uh, he knows that something will be enjoyable, and he does it. And I say that to set up uh, this wonderful paragraph. And, and like I said earlier, I wanted to kind of hold off on talking too much about the style till I read mm-hmm. an extended passage. Uh, but this is from towards the end of the story. Uh, the uh, Father Brown and uh, and Father Bohun have gone into the church at this point, and this is how the narrator describes it. Immediately beneath and about them, the lines of the Gothic building plunged outwards into the void with a sickening swiftness akin to suicide. There is an element of Titan energy in the architecture of the Middle Ages that, from whatever aspect it be seen, it always seems to be rushing away like the strong back of some maddened horse. This church was hewn out of ancient and silent stone, bearded with old fungoids and stained with the nests of birds. And yet, when they saw it from below, it sprang like a fountain at the stars, and when they saw it as now from above, it poured like a cataract into a voiceless pit. For these two men on the tower were left alone with the most terrible aspect of Gothic, the monstrous foreshortening and disproportion, the dizzy perspectives, the glimpses of great things, small and small things great, a topsy turvydom of stone in the mid-air. Details of stone enormous by their proximity were relieved against a pattern of fields and farms, pygmy in the distance. A carved bird or beast at a corner seemed like some vast walking or flying dragon wasting the pastures and villages below. And the paragraph goes on for a while, but one of the things about this building is that it distorts one's sense of proportion in the world. Uh, it really is a... a, a macrocosm i guess of the psychology of the of the anglican priest uh Hmm. he starts to think of himself as looking down on the sins of the people below especially his brothers Uh, he starts to think of his own role in things as being very much higher than everyone else and that's and that's that's the bit that you know todd was focusing on earlier that you know the physical Hmm. perspective uh, corresponds and, you know, informs the psychology of the piece.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it really is a, a wonderful little thing where, again, uh, there is no direct psychological examination, largely because we heard from the Crescent Moon story that, you know, psychologists tend not to do well in these stories. <laughs> uh, but there's definitely something psychological going on with the shape of... And the form of this cathedral. Mm. Nice.
0: One of the things that uh, I, I love that you brought up, that, that you focused on that passage. It's one of my favorites um, mm-hmm. in, in in all of the Father Brown stories. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I keep coming back to this particular story. Um, because that, the, the way you. The way being on the height of the tower essentially drives you mad by upsetting your notion of where of where you stand in the balance of the world um, is countered by by uh, Father Brown when he confronts uh, he, he he confronts Father Wilfred and says uh, I knew a man who began by worshiping with the others before the altar. But who grew fond of high and lonely places to pray from. Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. if he'd stayed with everyone else on the floor where he belonged, mm-hmm. the architecture would have served its proper point of drawing his eye up mm-hmm. to the stupendous. But because, he, because he, he removed his position from before the altar to the top of the tower... That same that same uh, that same powerful architecture that once drew the eye to a powerful up mm. is now an equally powerful downward motion. Hmm. Um, it, it, it inverts inverts the world essentially. Um, anyway, I, I, I love that yeah. passage, and I love the <laughs> I love the way the story ends as well because mm-hmm. um, ultimately. Wilfred comes down from the tower. Uh, initially, he tries to commit suicide. He throws a leg over the mm-hmm. over the balcony, and Father Brown pulls him back. So ultimately, he comes down from his perch, and he says, "I give myself up. I've killed my brother." Mm. And you know that's that's what he you know what he's doing is he's coming down to join. The other mere mortals, and so confessing mm-hmm. his sin, as not of a, a god judging a man, but a, mm-hmm. it's it's the sin of Cain. Mm-hmm.
3: And he does so in that that he's now calm. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's this calm about him. It's very simply said, but uh, but uh, he's free in the, in this sense to 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 make that statement, and mm. um, it is beautiful. Yeah.
0: Well, how do we want to put these together? It seemed like both you gentlemen thought that, that we would we would do well to uh, to say some summative things, not just to focus on them individually. Todd.
3: Well, I think I uh, one of the things that you know after I had read them, and again, I had I had read I think I'm pretty sure that I had read the uh, the the Moon Crescent story previously, but I'd not read The Hammer of God. And um, it does seem I, I, I guess it it shows some commonalities in the way that, that that Chesterton is is pointing to reactions to certain types of people as you've as as you've said. And certainly the the Christianity that results in a judgmentalism is something that he wants nothing to do with. <laughs> And it comes out in, 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 in various places among his corpus. Um, but these two, two – I mean I guess I just – I felt one – that's one common theme that's, 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 that's here and elsewhere. Um, but also, you know, I, thinking in terms of where he is writing, when he is writing, I'm I, – I, you know, the, the cultural moment in which he is writing. Um, he really does have a lot to say. Against the, um, against the modernist trend to, to disavow any, anything outside of that which is visible, that which is sensible, and so forth, mm-hmm. um, which plays a role in both these stories as well. Nathan,
1: I'm, I'm going to return to something that we talked about earlier, uh, mm-hmm. and that is Chesterton's clever way of skewering uh, the modern rejection of the traditional. Uh, and I mean, as I, as I say this, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and anticipate that, that some listener who started listening to us back in 2009 will no doubt say that, or will no doubt remember that, you know, I said back then that I always feel like Chesterton is trying to sell me something. <laughs> um, and I still think that's true, but uh, in this case... Uh, I think that uh, the way that he tells these stories and the way that he sets up these characters really as, as side jobs, you know. Uh, you know, the, the Oklahoma religionist who has a, a religion of wind, the mm-hmm. materialists who mock the traditional but then immediately start jumping to miraculous conclusions, mm. uh, the atheist cobbler. And by the way, I'm not sure why atheists are usually co- – or why cobblers are usually atheists. Uh, that, that, that little throwaway – I can't explain that one either. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I, I I only know one cobbler myself, and he's a church deacon. But uh, – I know one, and he's a peach. No, oh, no, sorry. That's a, that's a very bad joke. That's, that, yeah, that really is. But <laughs> – you know, the the idea that, you know, this cobbler, because he's an atheist, he holds up the English legal system as an almost divine thing. Uh, it, it is a subtle little satire on the sort of fashionable disbelief uh, that certainly pervades the first third of the 20th century and certainly hasn't gone away in the first third of the 21st. Well,
0: uh, one of the reasons why I put these two together... Uh, they they go together in my mind, not just for the reasons that uh, you two have cited, uh, the the commonality of, of the the theme of judgment that you picked up on Todd and and the the examination of people who seem to represent different perspectives on the world that that you talked about, Nathan. Uh, is also Father Brown's insight into the two murderers. He seems to have a great deal of sympathy with Wilfred and Hammer of God, and with you know the three tramps in Moon Crescent. Mm-hmm. And uh, at at the uh, at the end of Hammer of God, Wilfred is is aghast because Father Brown seems to know what he did, mm. and without having been there, without having seen him. And uh, Wilfred asks him, you know, how do you know these things? Are you a devil? And Father Brown's answer is, no, I'm a man. And so have all devils in my heart. One of the things I love about these stories is the way that Father Brown can imaginatively sympathize with the murderer in the moment of the murder or in the conception mm. of the murder and see that 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 in that moment it wasn't a it wasn't a moment of bestial insanity which was the popular thing in Chesterton's day was just mm. to say criminality is a kind of insanity it's 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 something that mm. makes you subhuman and we need to classify those people who are of criminal types um, no, rather, Father Brown sees himself as also, uh, also a sinner with a sinner's imagination, and and he imagines himself into the position of when what would happen to me, what would have to be true in order for this crime to make moral sense to me, and when he knows that, he knows who did it. So it's it's I, yeah. I
3: it's fantastic, <laughs> That's fantastic.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, it's one of the things that I love most about the Father Brown stories is, is his sympathy with those who often he ends up catching because they because he doesn't classify them as monsters to be captured and sequestered or put down um, but as souls to be sought out so that they may have their opportunity to confess and repent well, anything else we want to say before we end this? This has been a, a long one, I think.
1: Mhm. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Sorry. No, 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 no. It's alright. It's just I,
1: I'm, I'm, I'm watching the clock, and I've got to teach in not very long. So.
2: Okay.
3: <laughs> yeah, I my own I, I just wanted. I guess I'm glad that Nathan brought up that passage from the hammer because, um, it it struck me there, and I maybe it struck me there because I'm reading Jaber Crow. I, yeah, ha uh, ha. Uh, sorry, that was that was unintentional.
1: <laughs> yeah, you kind of you kind of left that one blowing in the wind.
3: <laughs> oh my goodness, um, but I'm I'm reading Jaber Crow right now, and one of the things about the way that Barry sets up that novel is, again, there's a there's a message in the mere descriptive passages um, mm-hmm. that is is just so skillfully put in. To these stories um, and in that passage in, in particular in particular on the hammer I, I just I, I, I love the way that he's crafted the piece mm-hmm. and I think that's one of the things that makes his work so powerful well I think we will end
0: on that point dear listeners I hope you've enjoyed this episode uh, who's who's up next Nathan
1: me me <laughs> and what are you you doing <laughs> Well, uh, our email box has been piling up, and we've had some very good emails coming in from listeners. So next week, uh, we'll bring Danny back in, and we'll have us a good old listener feedback episode. Huzzah! Good,
0: good. Well, dear listeners, if you want to send us some of that feedback, um, yeah, there won't be time. Because we will have recorded the (laughs) episode on the afternoon of the day that this releases. In the <laughs> event that you want to send Yeah, yeah, you're just going to dare him, aren't you, David? <laughs> 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 Defy space and time to get in. Um, now, if you want to send feedback that we can pick up on another occasion, uh, you can send us email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can post on the show notes for this episode on our blog, christianhumanist.org. You can also uh, leave us messages through uh, our Facebook page. You can like us there. You can also like us on iTunes. um, Give us ratings. Give us stars. Give us reviews. The more people we reach, well, you know, our income doesn't go up, but we think this is good stuff, and we love to share, right? So the Christian Humanist podcast is the flagship of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Phillips. Uh, Philippic and our intern is Amberly Copeland. I'm David Grubbs on behalf of Nathan Gilmore and Todd Pedler, imploring you, along with Luther, to let your sin be strong, but to let your faith be stronger.